This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. Folks, I am so excited about the conversation we're going to have today. We have aboard my friend, the amazing Mark Gerson, host of the phenomenal Rabbi's Husband podcast, which if you're not listening, subscribe now, rate it on iTunes. I mean, the whole shebang, it's phenomenal. He's the co-founder and chairman of United Hatzalah, and most importantly, for the time of the year, has just published a wonderful book on the Haggadah, on the classical central text of the Jewish holiday of Passover, and as we'll talk about, I think so much more than that. The book is called The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. It's published by St. Martin's Essentials. It's already number one in all the relevant Amazon categories, and it's just so phenomenal, I couldn't wait to talk about it. So I brought on Mark to talk about it with me. Mark, thank you so much for being on Good Faith Effort. Oh, Ari, it is so great to be here with you today. I'm so looking forward to this discussion. Oh my God, likewise. So, you know, the narrative of the exodus from Egypt is probably, in fact, I'd go even further than that. It is certainly the most iconic, enduring, influential narrative in the history of humanity. Right, no question. You know, in a world dominated for most of the last 4,300 years by empires and imperial domination, it was this story, a story about a god who cares for slaves and has contempt for tyrants, that truly conquered the world. And in the history of this country, it plays a central role at the most crucial moments in our national story, from the Pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock, to the decision to revolt against England, to the operation of the Underground Railroad, to the rhetoric and activism of Martin Luther King Jr., and far beyond that. And it's this larger-than-life narrative, but I think it's easy to simply categorize it or compartmentalize it as a story just about the importance of freedom, and then you stop there. But you actually take it so much further in this book, which is what I loved about it, which is that you see the Haggadah as what you describe as the greatest hits of Judaism, and you see it as essentially a manual for life. So can you unpack what you mean by that and why you see it that way and what led you to that realization? Well, that's exactly right. And and first, I'd just comment on what you were saying about the role of the Exodus story in American history. You are so right. I have a chapter in the book on that called The Greatest Seder of Them All. Oh, we'll get there. It's, oh, it's good. my okay, favorite so, so we, can, we can hold that thought until <laughs> we get there. But I really fell in love with the Haggadah. This exploration started probably around 15 years ago when I was having a cigar with my friend Jeff Balbon at Club Macanudo and he said, let's study the Haggadah. The guy who got me my first job. Oh, is that right? Well, uh, that is right, baby. Well, uh, well, a well-deserved shout, shout out, out to Jeff. Absolutely. Well-deserved. And, uh, and so we started studying the Haggadah just that afternoon over cigars. And it was just interesting because I had never really considered the Haggadah as something worthy of study, but we just opened it up and started studying some of the passages. And that afternoon began an exploration, which continues to this day and will go, God willing, far beyond this day, because the Haggadah is, as you quoted from the book, the greatest hits of Jewish thought. Because in order to understand how that's the case, I think we have to conceive the holiday for which it's a guidebook, Pesach or Passover, as what it is in the Bible, which is the original and genuine and biblical Jewish New Year. So in comes the Haggadah and says, it's the new year. It's time to consider how you did in the previous year. It's time to take inventory of yourselves now. It's time to make resolutions about who you want to be individually and nationally and collectively in the coming year. And here's the great guidebook culled from all of Jewish thought to help you do so in the most practical ways. 
Unbelievable. And I actually want to get, I, I want to get right into that chapter. As Great. I said, it was my favorite one in the book. Thank you. And by the way, this is one of those books that you just, you pick it up, you can't put it down. Some of the chapters are longer. Some of them are two pages right. and you can really just run through the whole thing. I, I, I just read it cover to cover in oh, thank you. <laughs> like two days. <laughs> so, you know, America is particularly receptive to this story, to the story of the Exodus, the story of, of Moses and his leadership, to the story of of the Jews merging from slavery, creating covenant and fulfilling their destiny. And America is particularly receptive to this story in the most kind of prosaic sense, because as you point out, as uh, the great observer, the greatest observer of American affairs, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville put it in Democracy in America, I says, on my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. Right. But also because I think in a in a larger sense, right, it's not just that America is a religious com- a country and this is a religious story, um, but also because the story itself so resonates with and has even helped generate our national story, right? So you actually right. describe us, and I think in a much more sophisticated way than just we have religious inclinations and it's a religious story, you describe America as sort of a Moses nation. And can you unpack what that means? That's exactly right. So our charge on Seder night is to relive and retell the story of the Exodus. That's what a Seder is or a Seder should be. So I have the chapter in the book, the greatest Seder of them all, because who has done that best of all? It's American history. American history, the unfolding of American history, the ongoing story that American history is, as you said, starting when the pilgrims landed, is exactly that. We are, as a nation, reliving and retelling the story of the Exodus in the most profound and direct ways. And this story has been the inspiration and the guiding light for so many of the most important actors in the great freedom story of America. Harriet Tubman, her nickname was Grandma Moses. When the slaves dreamed of freedom, the inspirational story to them was the story of the Exodus and the slave spirituals, which became part of the American musical canon, almost always derived from the Exodus story. Martin Luther King, one of his great speeches was given right up the avenue from here at St. John the Divines, the same speech that he gave at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. This is a, a relatively young Martin Luther King in the mid-50s. The speech was called the death of evil by the sands of the seashore. Right underneath the title, it says Exodus 1430. He's giving a midrash on Exodus 1430, and he realizes that just as Moses liberated the Jews in his day, Martin Luther King realized he could liberate his people in his day by emulating Moses, and that's exactly what he did. And we see this story continuing. Most presidential inaugurations have some reference to Moses. Barack Obama talked about the Moses generation and the Joshua generation. President Bush said he got his inspiration to run for president when he heard a mention of Moses in church. So as you said, quoting the book, is America a Judeo-Christian nation? Perhaps. What it's most fundamentally is a Mosaic nation. So much so, actually, that in the House of Representatives, a relief of 23 lawmakers from all of history, there are English lawmakers and Greek lawmakers and ancient Roman lawmakers. There are 11 facing one way. There are 11 facing the other way. In the middle is Moses. Everyone's facing Moses. I mean, it's really unbelievable. Actually, I want to return to that speech by Barack Obama you just mentioned, which was really one of the defining speeches of his campaign, right. the Joshua Generation speech. And I wonder, you know, in, in uh, last week's episode, I spoke to Trey Stevens from the Founders Fund 
about this actually particular question about at a certain point, a nation has to get past its Moses generation, right? Which is what that speech is about. At a certain point, we have to become Joshua's. And at the same time, when I think about where a lot of the real excitement and dynamism in American life is coming from, at least sort of from a perception standpoint, we always think of Silicon Valley, of the world of startups, of entrepreneurship, and there, everybody wants to be a founder. And being a founder is considered sort of a mark of not just high distinction, but of rare achievement and accomplishment. Is there just something baked into the DNA of the American story, to mix metaphors, that makes it so that there is actually a possibility of each generation spinning out another Moses? Or is there a virtue to saying, you know what, Joshua's are important as well? Well, in the Bible, of course, there's Moses, who is the central figure in the Exodus. And it's interesting, we can discuss why Moses is not in the Haggadah, despite the fact he's the central right. figure in the Exodus story. And then, of course, one aspect of Moses's great leadership was his ability to identify, to mentor, and to literally anoint Joshua as the leader of the next generation. And what's so interesting is that as Americans, going back 400 years, have contemplated the freedom ambition. It's been this ancient story that has guided us in all circumstances. It's guided us nationally, it's guided us spiritually, and it's guided us psychologically. And every year we are so blessed to have the Seder as the opportunity to study the sacred text of the Haggadah, which derives directly from the Torah, as well as to think about how can we individually and collectively relive and retell this great story which is our awesome heritage. I want to transition now to sort of the question of culture, because what you've described so vividly and aptly is how baked into the spirit of America, the Moses story, the Exodus story, the story of the Haggadah is really. And one thing you reference in that chapter actually is this watershed moment in American pop culture, which is the Ten Commandments movie, right. which I see is really just still the greatest cinematic achievement in the history of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things you reference in there is one of my favorite sort of pieces of trivia about the Ten Commandments movie, which is that DeMille actually has films this sort of like 10 minute introduction to the movie. Right. That you can still find on YouTube. Yeah, exactly. It is amazing. This is a guy who is the Scorsese of his generation. Right. He's like Scorsese and like Snyder baked into one because he's got the drama, he's got the big vision, he's got the whiz bang, he's got the explosions, all of that stuff. And you're watching this video of a man who has literally ascended the pinnacle of American popular culture. And when he's introducing probably his greatest cinematic achievement, he's reading from a huge King James Bible. Mm -hmm. He's referencing Renaissance sculpture, Flemish Baroque painting. He's reading from and referencing the work the ancient Jewish historians Philo and Josephus. He's examining ancient maps and archaeological relics of the ancient world. And my question to you is this. It seems like almost impossible for a major director, producer, Hollywood star to introduce a film that way again. It's such a rich introduction that takes American viewers so seriously and assumes they're capable of so much. Was that just sort of an ephemeral moment in the history of American pop culture that we'll never get back or an American pop culture that's left to continue grasping the story and lessons of the Exodus and learning from them? Absolutely. I, I think the Exodus, I think the, the, that movie should be remade now. I mean, it's uh, the Exodus is our eternal story 
both as the Jewish people, as, as Jews and Christians, and as Americans, all of us, it's our eternal story of freedom. And it resonates on so many levels in so many ways for all times. Now, one of the very interesting things about that monologue, and whoever thought a director of a movie would begin the film with a monologue, it was as strange then as it would be now, but it was so important for him to do so. This is the 1956 version. He also did a version in 1923. Right, the silent version. So, yeah, a silent version. So, and and they're they're both two of the top grossing movies in contemporary dollars of all times. In the 56 version, he comes out and says, the Exodus story, which you're about to see, is the inspirational narrative for freedom and against communism. So he applied the Exodus story to the freedom struggle internationally in his day. And that's how he introduced the film. That was what was inspiring him. And it is a masterpiece. Oh, it's it's, it's truly tremendous. And actually, speaking of, of modern applications... A theme of Passover that consistently makes its way both into the popular imagination and into satyrs all around the world, mine included, is Jew hatred. Mm -hmm. Because this is sort of the origin story of what in the popular lexicon is called anti-Semitism and what in your book you very deliberately called Jew hatred. And I think that to a certain type of modern reader, there's something offensive about the book of Exodus's approach to this, right? Because it's bloody and gory. The Jew haters get their comeuppance in in quite spectacular fashion. And I think that there's sort of this very strange, like modern Jewish tick where we're uncomfortable with Jew haters getting very serious comeuppance. This comes up, for example, my my grandfather and teacher, uh, Rabbi Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory, whom we talk about on this podcast often. And and who I must have quoted in the book 15 or 20 times. He's He's... Such a genius. But, you know, he has this wonderful sermon about the holiday of Purim, which is commemorating the narrative of the book of Esther, which also has a very serious component of Jew haters getting a very bloody comeuppance. And he tells the story of like this Hebrew U professor who uses his knowledge of Jewish law, you know, and the fact that he lives near Jerusalem but doesn't live in Jerusalem to basically avoid, according to Jewish law, having to celebrate the holiday of Purim at all which of course just only goes to prove the old adage that not just anybody can be a heretic. To be a good heretic, you actually have to know something. Right. Um, but, you know, there is this sort of there is this sort of modern reader that's very uncomfortable with violence in spiritual stories. And yet, I think one of the interesting themes that emerges from your book is that in a way, one of the lessons we're supposed to learn from the Haggadah and from the, the Passover story is the context in which hatred actually can be a virtue. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about the way that that hate plays into the Passover story and how we might be able to learn from it today? Is it is it bad to hate? Are there contexts in which it's appropriate? How do we think about hatred in a contemporary context? Well, it's a, it's a great question on so many levels. I mean, the, the Haggadah says, it is this that has stood by our fathers and us. For not only one has risen against us to annihilate us, but in every generation they rise up to annihilate us. So the Haggadah is telling us, probably deriving directly from Exodus 15 with the story of Amalek, Amalek being the force that attacked us when we were hungry, thirsty, and in mutiny in the desert. When we were at our weakest point, Amalek attacked us. And what the Haggadah is telling us is that in every generation, there will be a force that will do that. Today, of course, it is Iran. And if we can't identify a force that's trying to destroy us, we have to investigate more, look harder, because as the Haggadah has told us, unfortunately, truthfully, there will be that force. And yes, with an enemy, with an enemy who wants to destroy us, we must take inspiration from the Exodus story as we must do with everything else. And we must uh, confront that reality head on 
directly and honestly and realize that there are enemies who want to destroy us and that uh, very often the hatred of our enemies is not just a love waiting to happen, as someone said, but it's a genuine hatred. And in fact, the Bible says that if you see your enemy's donkey fall, you must help with him. Why with him? Why not just you must pick up the donkey? The teaching is if he's not willing to help with you, you have no obligation to help him pick up the donkey. That if we have an adversary, and it could be a national adversary or a personal adversary, but in this case, let's focus on personal adversary. Even with a personal adversary, these kinds of relationships can improve, but only if both parties are willing to work together to improve it. If we work with the person to pick up the donkey. Now, on a more national level, there are enemies who want to destroy us, and we must take inspiration from Moses. And as my friend Ronan Bergman said in his book, quoting the Talmud, rise and kill first. One of my favorite pieces that I ever wrote was this piece for Tablet after Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed. And I think the title was, yes, it's good to hate Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Absolutely. Well, because why? Because he's God's enemy. Yes, right. That's precisely the point. We can't forgive God's enemy. And we have the ability to make distinctions between our enemy and God's enemy. Our enemy might be the person yes. with whom we have a dispute and the donkey fell and that there's a relationship there. But God's enemy is the person who attacks the defenseless, the vulnerable, the people who are just going about their daily lives like we were in Egypt when the um, when the Amalekites came and attacked us. And we don't have any right to love them at all. We have to act as the defenders of the vulnerable, helping people who can't help themselves. And just like in the Moses story and the Exodus story, like Moses does when he sees an Egyptian fighting a Jew, like Moses does when he sees those men at the well harassing those women and he ends up marrying one of the women, Zipporah. This is our inspirational character, is we have to know when to love and when not to. Now, I think it's very interesting, though, that in this passage I just read, where we are reminded that in every generation there will be a force that will rise up to annihilate us, immediately following this in the Exodus text is, so we go from 15, of course, to 16. 16 is a story of Jethro. Jethro is the great friend of the Jews. He is Moses's Gentile friend, father-in-law, and mentor. And he wasn't the first Gentile friend and mentor of the Jews. King Melchizedek was when Abraham was in a moment of vulnerability. Right, back in the book of Genesis. That's right. He's seemingly about to make a bad deal with the king of Saddam after winning the battle of the four kings against the five kings. And King Melchizedek, the Gentile king, comes out of nowhere and reminds Abraham that he is a child of, and Melchizedek coins his term, the God of the Most High. And Melchizedek sends Abraham on the right Jewish path, as does Jethro with Moses, as does Caleb with Joshua and the other spies. So we have this great tradition of Jewish-Gentile friendship and mentorship and striving together to work for God. And I think one of the real miracles in our time, perhaps the defining Jewish miracle in our day, in other words, in your and my lifetime, is this incredible Jewish Gentile friendship, which has been born, developed, and is blossoming in the last 35 to 40 years. I mean, I've been so blessed to be able to speak with so many Christian groups as a part of this book process about the great story of the Exodus. And there's such deep desire to rediscover their Jewish roots. And there's this profound love among so many Christians of Judaism, of the Jewish religion, the Jewish state, the Jewish people, all things Jewish. And it's really all blossoming in our time. So when we think about our enemies on Seder night, which we must, like Iran, we also should think about our friends. And these are so many Christians who are just waiting for us to study with them, to learn with them, and to approach God in different ways, but together. And I love that. And that actually is a perfect transition because, of course, it is precisely hatred of the deepest, darkest evil that provides a context within which love has meaning. Right. And love, of course, is the great goal of our moral development. And this actually is something that you say in the book, which, which I found so powerful. You say something along the lines of, 
this is the worst time in history to be a Jew hater. Right. And it's the best time in history to be a Jew. And the best time I'd add, as you do as well, to be a lover of the Jewish people, a friend of the Jewish people. And, you know, it's funny. I think of this because you mentioned, you know, Tsipora before. I think it was a couple episodes ago we had Pastor Van Moody from the Worship Center in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, we were talking about who is the most underrated character in the Bible. He mentions Zipporah as the as the most underrated character in the Bible. And, you know, it strikes me, I just saw on Twitter something, it was one of those like classic attempted dunks that you see every now and then, which is, oh, the idea of, of there being, you know, a Judeo-Christian tradition. Oh, the ancient Jews uh, thousands of years ago. Can you imagine what they would have thought about that? And the answer is, of course, that's the point. That's why it's such a miracle. This is a tradition that developed and flourished and was able to thrive in spite of all of the reasons that it shouldn't have. And despite all of the factors, quite frightening, the historical factors that should have and would have and did in many cases limit it. And yet you get to the mid-20th century and you have no less a figure than Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik of blessed memory, one of the greatest American religious, forget Jewish, one of the greatest right. American religious thinkers of the 20th century, saying, yes, it is legitimate and good to speak of a Judeo-Christian tradition and civilization. Absolutely. And one of the things that I love about your podcast, The Rabbi's Husband, which is just so phenomenal, is that you frequently have on people from people from other traditions, from the Christian tradition, other traditions who you engage with and who are engaging with you. And what are some of the lessons that you've learned from doing this kind of engagement? Why is now the best time in history to be a Jew and a friend of the Jewish people? I think it's because we have the best friends we've ever had. And, you know, there are only two times in the Torah when the term not good appears. One is God to Adam is not good to be alone. The other is Jethro to Moses. It is not good effectively to lead alone. So it's not good to be alone in any way. And then Balaam's in the book of Numbers, his curse of the Jews, not blessing, but the curse was, this shall be a people that dwells alone. And now for the first time in history, we are not alone. We have these blessed friends who are friends in the deepest and most profound ways. And it's a love that is really so encompassing. It's the Jewish faith, it's the Jewish state, it's the Jewish people. So if you're gonna be an enemy of the Jews, now we have hundreds of millions, genuine great friends. So it's a really bad time to be an anti-Semite. And consequently, it's a really great time to be a Jew for just about every reason. The fact that we're having this discussion, which I'm enjoying so much, the way we're having it is, is one reason, but even more profoundly, all these incredible friends that we have as the Jewish people marching together, it's just, uh, it's just a, a great time to be a Jew. And for the same reason, it's a terrible time to be a Jew hater because if you're gonna hate the Jews, we have a lot of friends by our side. I love it. And that actually reminds me of one of the most charming moments in your book, which I think the vast majority of people will miss because it's like in the acknowledgement section, which people usually skip, which resonated with me so much because I did something similar in my dissertation. You thank technology companies. Right. You thank Google for creating a search engine that you used extensively. You right. thanked Apple for creating the iPad. Right. I actually did this in the introduction of my dissertation. I thanked Zoom for making my defense possible. In my department, I was the first dissertation defense in the COVID era. And the reason I raise this is because, you know, you could kind of, you could laugh it off as a cute thing, but I actually think it speaks to something quite profound, which is that we're living in an era where Judaism has this, this doctrine of the decline of generations, which postulates that in some serious and sophisticated way, we are in a lower, worse or lower spiritual condition than our ancestors. 
And yet, at the same time, the very notion of eschatology, of working towards a redemptive era, which the Hebrew Bible introduced to civilization and still is the is the great champion of in civilization, the idea that we are working, that we are partnering with God to make the world better, to transform it for the better, to bring goodness and greatness to this world, to the here and now, not to escape this world for some other spiritual realm. That very doctrine presupposes sort of the contrary notion, which is that we can and will and must improve upon previous generations. And in fact, the greatness or the genius of Hebrew civilization is that unlike in the Greek tradition, in the philosophical tradition, where P and not P are incompatible, in the Hebrew tradition, P and not P can both be true at the same time. Interesting. And what I think, therefore, we confront in this era is the reality that I'll just use Yeshiva University as an example. That's my alma mater. In creating yutorah.org, which is this incredible repository of Jewish teaching resources and just the sheer number of people, like hundreds of thousands who are engaging with it. Including me. You could make the argument that the largest, most successful institutions of Jewish learning in the history of Judaism exist right now. Absolutely. So my question to you would be, when you thank Google or Apple or, or when, when someone thanks Zoom, what does that say, rather, about the opportunities that we have now, not just to engage in learning, but to spread learning in ways that we never have before? Well, exactly. And, and I'm so glad you, you, you noticed that in the acknowledgments, but that, that also is the answer to what we were previously talking about, which is one of the reasons why is this the greatest time ever to be a Jew. It's so easy to study Judaism. It is so easy. It's always challenging to really engage, but it's so easy to access our sacred text. One of my favorite sites on the internet is put in Google Brussels Norman Lamb and outcome your grandfather's sermons from the early 1950s <laughs> for about 28 or 29 years. It's amazing. Your grandfather's sermons right there that anyone can access right now. It's a genuinely awesome repository of Jewish wisdom. And I was able to learn so much from him and cite him with such frequency because it was so accessible due to the inventions of these technology entrepreneurs and engineers and, and, and the companies. You know, I, I was able to write the book because at some point after that cigar with Jeff Balaban, I developed uh, an exercise addiction. And uh, I have to run now six miles every morning, I have to. So what I do is I study the Torah on the treadmill through audio and video. And now there's a wealth of audio and video resources of deeply textual English language Torah that's completely accessible to anybody. And that I look forward to every morning to learning and then I take notes on it and finish my day. But that's all due to the companies that made the treadmill. Apple, which made the iPad that I use, I put right on the stand with the treadmill. All of the companies that have allowed this great Jewish learning to be assimilated and just there for our use. And, uh, and it's a great time to be a Jew. This was not possible 10 years ago. I mean, forget about, forget about 20 years. This was 10 years ago, I couldn't have done this. But now we can all do it. Everyone can Jewishly learn the greatest texts of our tradition in completely accessible ways in English. And I would recommend starting with Norman Lamb. At, just go to Brussels, Norman Lamb and Google or Brussels YU. It pops right up and it's so easily searchable. I cannot endorse that enough. Amen. Mark, this was amazing. Everybody, this is Mark Gerson. The book is The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can get it. You can get it anywhere books are sold. You get it at Amazon. Sure. You can get it wherever you get your books. And subscribe to The Rabbi's Husband. What's a, what's a good episode you have coming up or that you did on The Rabbi's Husband? What's a good one for people to jump into? Oh, we have a library now of over 100 episodes, and we have several that are coming up. So 
Anyone can go to the rabbi's husband. They'll certainly uh, recognize a guest who they respect, who they like, who they want to learn from, and or they'll recognize a Torah passage or a biblical idea that they want to learn and just please listen and let me know what you think. Amazing. Mark, thank you so much for being here. Ari, thank you. What a pleasure. What a great time. Thank you. I know if you're a consumer of pop culture, the Exodus story seems like something you can easily grasp and put away in a box filed under freedom or liberty. But the truth is the book of Exodus and the Jewish holiday of Passover that it birthed contains untold multitudes. Engaging with its wisdom will repay your efforts a hundredfold. So if you want to understand what it means to be a Jew or a believer in the Bible or an American or a leader or even just a good human being in the most fundamental sense, well, now you know where to start reading. Anyway, thanks so much for joining me today. This is a total blast. And if you like what you heard, go on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts on, give us a rating and give us a review. And please hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, just hit me up at Ari Lam so that I can tell the world how awesome our listeners are. This is Ari Lam for Good Faith Effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lam and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.